Come on, let's make magic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. We are the podcast that looks at all things Doctor Who Extended Universe, from NAs to EDAs, Magic Bullet to Target Books and BBVs to AVs and anything even more tenuous than that, we cover it all. Today's guest is John Isles, one third of the hosting team of The Tripods Cast, a podcast dedicated to The Tripods novels, TV series and the works of Sam Yud, aka John Christopher. He has been part of the Waste Lake film production team making Doctor Who fan films and the award-winning original short films and documentaries for over 25 years. His Doctor Who spin-off credentials are writing a short story for the Big Finish anthology Bernie Summerfield Something's Changed and co-writing another story with Charles Octolaney in Big Finish's short trips A History of Christmas. Wastelake Films also made the comedy short Auton Diaries 2 a DVD bonus feature for BBV. So John, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi Dylan, thank you for inviting me on. I'm okay. A little nervous. It's just a nice experience and a little trepidatious to appear on other people's podcasts after doing my own for so long now. But, you know, I'm working my way around. I've done a few very British features for my friend Gareth mm-hmm. Preston. Well, it, it's it's great to have you here. As you said, you've, you've got the Tripods cast and very British futures, but today it's all Doctor Who Extended Universe. So we've got three really interesting things to cover. Yeah. But first of all, I like to hit everybody with this question because it helps set the scene. It's very generic, but I need to know, how did you become a Doctor Who fan? Whoa, right. Let's go <laughs> way, way back in time. My earliest memory of Doctor Who is when I was four years old watching Destiny of the Daleks at my grandma's house. I didn't know what the Daleks were and I remember her telling me that they were robots. I'll let her off, you know, <laughs> for that. I was four. And another memory from around the same time is Tom Baker came to our town Huddersfield to the department store to do oh, a nice. book signing. I was four, almost five, my brother was three. My parents wouldn't buy me a Target novelisation because they felt that it'd be too advanced for me. Wow. Now, I've always been a good reader, so instead I have Doctor Who discovers prehistoric creatures, <laughs> which I still have the signed poster from Tom Baker. I had it on my wall for years. Amazing. This is the moment that'll make you go, aww. He had uh, a canine prop there as well, mm. uh, and, and while everyone was fussing around Tom, I, I went up to K9 and was disappointed and confused that he didn't speak back to me (laughs) well we'll make up for your lack of target book today i'm sure and the thing that really catalyzed me into being a fan was in 1987 i really got into season 24 because i didn't i I dislike colin baker i watched all the season 22 and 23 but i just didn't like him i never forgave him for strangling perry (laughs) which is fair you know it it, it is but you know he's, he's one of my favorites now yeah but I'd read some targets from the library. Uh, I remember Mordred Undead and Dark Invasion of Earth, which I'd only ever seen the film. 
So I pictured right. it as Cushing throughout the entire novel, even though I'd seen Five Faces of Doctor Who. I'd forgotten about Hartnell. But it doesn't it doesn't help that that target novelization, at least one of the covers, has imagery from the film rather than the, the yeah. TV episode, does yeah, it? Yeah, it's got the, the film flying saucer. It's the one with the machine gun toting Robo-Men. Yeah. Which I think is a great cover. And, and of course, back then, I didn't even know Cushing didn't count as a Doctor. So, you know, as far as I was aware... You know, it was legitimate Doctor Who. So that Christmas, my mum got me some second-hand targets from a charity shop. I definitely got Web of Fear, Day of the Daleks, I think the Sea Devils, Death to the Daleks, Destiny. I think the person that had them must have been a, a Dalek fan. In fact, mm. the Destiny of the Daleks was signed by Tom Baker. Oh, wow. Probably at the same session. <laughs> I, I got mine signed, but, you know, eight years later, yeah. I became a proper fan with the BC2 repeats. I watched the unbroadcast version of Unearthly Child. I watched it out of interest because I thought, oh, it'll be rubbish like Plan 9 or something. <laughs> but it was amazing. I was, I was captivated. And then um, I just got into fandom, bought Doctor Who magazine, and then started buying the books and, and videos. Nice. And it just kept growing and growing until I got married and had children. So, <laughs> too, 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 too hot for TV. I reached out to you about coming on the podcast and we kind of stewed over a couple of ideas. Mm. And we're going to do a couple of firsts actually for Too Hot for <laughs> TV, which is great. I'm always up for people coming up with new ideas. So the first thing we're going to do is Doctor Who and the Sea Devils by Malcolm yes. Hawke. Now, I hear people at home going, but you don't cover televised Doctor Who. Well, <laughs> we are not. We're going to be covering the novel of it. And as I'm sure as we get into the discussion, people will find out, you know, there are subtle differences and it. it is different from the TV version. Yes. But before that, Doctor Who and the Sea Devils was written by Malcolm Holt, as I said. Uh, it was released on the 17th of October 1974, some two years after the story aired, and about four months after Planet of the Spiders episode six had aired. So that was the end of the Pertwee era, and people were waiting for this new guy, Tom Baker. Other releases at the time, TV Comic had two comic strips running, which was The Metal Eaters and Lords of the Ether, neither of which I've ever experienced. Have you ever read any of the TV comic stuff? I found one in an annual that, that I was going through recently in my boxes of stuff. 74 annual, a story called Doctor Who in Petrified. <laughs> and it was the third Doctor. I've glanced at the panels. Apparently it's by one of the really good artists. And it's, it's that weird thing of annuals where to save money, you've got a whole page that's blue and black. And you've got one that's red and black. Right. Or uh, or even, not green on this one, but, you know, for those of us that grew up in this country reading many annuals of other kinds, they mm. all did it, didn't they, to save... <laughs> uh, and I never understood at the time as a kid why why this strange colour pages, why isn't it colour yeah. or black and white? But as for the TV comic strips, I've only read what was in the uh, classic comics from Doctor Who magazine. Right. I, we haven't really covered any on this podcast, but I would like to at some point. It's a weird, interesting little area of Doctor Who history that kind of feels a little bit more... I, I'm going to say unlicensed, but they weren't unlicensed, obviously. But, you know, perhaps there wasn't somebody casting so much of a watchful eye over what people were doing. No, I, I've been reading the um, very excellent comics fanzine, Vorp Warp. Yes. There's an article where, I think, I'm going to say Donald Tosh or John Wiles did look at the storylines for the comics... And they did reject one where the Doctor had turned invisible and was going to kill his enemies or something. <laughs> so so there was some overview, but obviously not, not enough. 
Yeah. And I think Barry Letts may or may not have commented on some Pertwee ones, but, but you're right, it's kind of like, just do your own thing and we're not that fussed. Yeah. And the people writing them have probably even never seen Doctor Who. Or, like, the artists were only given reference photos, say, like, the Ten Planet Sidemen always turned up because that's all yeah. the artists had. It, it is bizarre. It's a weird but fun sometimes little side universe, isn't it? Yeah, it's this thing of, like, I'm really glad they exist and I love it when almost somebody else reads them and points out the funny discrepancies and things like that, but I don't know whether yeah. I'd want to spend, you know, months trawling through them all. No, there's a couple of books about them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ian Schoons, is it? Yeah. But no, I've enjoyed reading Vorp, Vorp. It's kind of reminded me how much I enjoy comics. Vorp is a a fantastic magazine, which is for people who aren't aware of what it is. It's essentially a Doctor Who magazine about Doctor Who magazines. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) it is is a fascinating read just in terms of it just looks at all the comic strips and things like that Mm. in, in, in great detail. But we digress slightly. We were talking about Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, which, as I yes. said, was released in October of 74, at the same time as the novelisation of The Demons. So what's your general relationship with the Target books? So Christmas 1987, I was 13. I had maybe five or six, maybe seven Target books. My mum had bought me from a charity shop because mm. I'd really enjoyed season 24 that year. You know, these are stories I'd never heard of. Obviously, I, I was aware of previous Doctors. Yeah. But just reading, say, Day of the Daleks, for example, I thought it was the best story I'd ever read. <laughs> the the clever plot of, you know, the bomb going off was a terrorist from the future trying to stop the bomb going off and preventing yeah. the war, causing the war. It was just brilliant. The Death to the Daleks with the infamous Dalek in Flames cover. Yeah. Uh, was there. Web of Fear... Uh, brilliant Troughton with, with a web and the Yeti. I thought that was mm-hmm. really claustrophobic and, and that was really good as well. But I, I thought they were great and couldn't wait for the day when I would eventually see them because I didn't even know about Doctor Who being on video then. Right. Uh, in fact, this is something that may I may have to hand in my Doctor Who fan card <laughs> is that when it was in the news about Doctor Who being rested or cancelled mm. in 1989, they said, oh, a statement from the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I thought... There's a fan club. Sad gits. <laughs> Why would you know? Why would you know? I can remember my first Target book being the junior Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, which my mom got out of um, the, the local library. And I, I, I must have been... I got into Doctor Who in 1989, so it would have been around that time, 89, 90. And I also remember her then, us going into the local WH Smiths and them having only one Doctor Who book, which was the greatest show in the galaxy. And she, her buying that but I remember trying to read it and I couldn't because it was too complicated a text. Um, for The, the for, junior one. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom reading me The Great Show in the Galaxy. And then throughout my childhood, as I became a more confident reader, I jumped in and out of... I would never read ones that I'd already seen, so I was all out looking for... New ones. Essentially. But in the 90s, I was a little bit too young to read the new adventures at the time, so it was it was really the target. So if it didn't exist, or it wasn't out on VHS, or I yeah. didn't own the VHS, th- those were the ones I'd go for. I also remember sneakily, later on, when I was sort of, I don't know, 14, 15... We'd have to do book reports at school. And uh, when I didn't want to read, I'd just do a book report on a Doctor Who story that I'd got on VHS and just bring the book along. (laughs) You you know, you mentioning Gracie Show there reminds me. I started buying my my own Target. So after the ones that I'd got for Christmas when I was 13, Mm. when I was at college when I was 16, 17... 
I went into Forbidden Planet over in Leeds and I saw the cover of Paradise Towers. Mm. And I always loved the design of the cleaner robots. Yeah. And Alistair Pearson's covers are, have always attracted me to them. And I thought, that was one I remembered. Mm. So it's like, right, I'll, I'll buy that one. So I bought that. And then a year later, when the Doctor Who repeats were on, it's like I started getting into it. And then I'd be buying my own either in, in Forbidden Planet or Dubert Smith if he still had them because they were doing the Blue Spine reprints. Mm-hmm. And then a few years after that, conventions. And then John Fitton put some magazines, <laughs> you know, wherever I could get them. Do, do you own a full set? No. I've no. never been that obsessed where I wanted a full set. Right. Simply because it's like, I'd refuse to pay 10 quid for the wheeling space. Yeah. Even though it's meant to be one of the best ones ever. Mm. But, you know, I pick up the ones at like a pound or two. It's interesting, those blue spine reprints you were talking about. Because in the 90s, I remember people going, oh, we don't really like the blue spine reprints. It's all about the... It's all the nostalgia more than anything else. Now those blue spine reprints go for loads of money, don't they? Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. You suggested doing this book. Yes. Well, actually, you suggested doing a Malcolm Hulk target book so what was it about malcolm hulk's target work in particular so i've always really liked the idea of malcolm hulk doing this thing where he gives characters life or makes them more realistic like giving the silurians names yeah in the novel because on the tv version he's emphasized they're intelligent they're as valid a species as we are mm-hmm. but he doesn't quite quite go far enough to give him names but mm. just the old Silurian, the young Silurian scientist yeah and things like i'll go on to the sea devils but things like it gives a maggot a point of view scene in the green death <laughs> he does he gets into characters heads and he tries to make real people like yeah. in dinosaur invasion he's got butler played by martin Jarvis on tv to identify him he's got a scar in the book and yeah. I hope no one's going to come on the podcast and talk about this now, so I'm stealing their thunder. <laughs> he's got a scar, which we find out when he talks to Sarah, that he got it from being a fireman rescuing a kid from a fire. Yeah. And that just puts a whole new perspective on the character. He's not this weird, malicious henchman or whatever, is he? Mm. You know, he's a real person who was a hero. I just like that. And even going back to Faceless Ones on television, because mm. he didn't write the novelization of that. That was um, Terrence Dix. Again, You've got this empathy for the bad guys. Yeah. You know, apart from the leader who, who's a bit evil, the rest of them, they just, they just want to live. And I think I, that just appealed to me, just just giving that those shades of grey to the characters, you know, making them real in, in kids' books, of all things. Yeah, I think he adds shades of grey and, you know, a bit of nuance to the characters. As you say, in kids' books, this is not a slight on Terence Dix, who's written some great books, but everybody knows there is a point where Terence Dix is churning them out. because, (laughs) And that's not to say he's churning them out because he's bored. It's because they're releasing loads of them a year. And, you know, they are quite flat retellings of television scripts down to sort of 90 pages. But I'll never forget reading Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, aka The Colony in Space, for the first time when I was younger. And I hadn't seen it at this point, but that is one of those books that got me really excited to see the TV version because I was like, oh, this sounds great. And he he paints this weird dystopian world and he describes the futuristic cities and the overpopulation back home. And you're like, oh, this is going to be really exciting stuff. And I love Colony in Space, but in terms of production values, shall we say, compared Mm. to the book, it really, like, they're, they're two worlds apart. Yeah. But I think his approach to kind of character and story 
while he is a person from a certain time period and writing for a certain format, mm. he certainly adds more character and more depth and, again, more shades of grey and things like that to everything he does for Doctor Who and beyond than I think a lot of writers at the time necessarily would do. Oh, def- definitely. He's thought about and he's given them more to do or the reader more to think about. I always think of he's the one that makes Mike Yates a traitor in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. And, it's, and that's giving his character something to do. It may come a little bit out of the blue. Yeah. I just think he's got a great like angle for character and he wants to give people a bit of a backstory. Oh yeah, it's like in uh, The Ambassadors of Death on television, he, Tony Six and Trevor Ray's story rewrote David Whitaker's script. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was him that made Carrington a sympathetic villain yeah. who wasn't a villain villain. And he, he did the same with Silo Rings, of course. And, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that was his thing not to have outright villains, even though he had the master in a couple of his stories. Yeah. I guess he might be the exception. I mean, yeah, but he does okay, He does make the master slightly more empathetic in the Sea Devils. I'm not, he does. Not, not loads, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that shortly. Yes. So what do you think of how this has been transferred from screen to page, essentially? Well, to say that it had to be condensed to be a shorter book, I think it's longer than the regular targets because this one's 140 yeah. and, and about 100 pages. It fits. I still find it an exciting story, yeah. even though I'm now familiar with it from the television. But uh, I think it does a good job and it just shows how much filler is in those Pertwee six-parters. Yeah. You know, you don't have the extended boat chase. You don't have the scene with the clangers. It's all there. You know, it's simplified, but again, he's given a bit more depth. We'll get on to why I chose that one out of all of his novelizations. Mm. that has the, the biggest change or revelation or um, the biggest character moment that makes the story, it just elevates the story above the television version mm. out of all of his novelizations. Which moment do you think that is? Is when Trenchard is killed by the Sea Devils and the Doctor finds his body and and we've known this from reading the scene, is that Trenchard's pistol was still... Uh, the safety catch was still on the pistol. Yeah. And so he couldn't have shot. Whereas in the TV version, he does fire his gun. But to give the character more depth, his safety catch is on. The Doctor, without anybody seeing, quietly takes the safety catch off to give the guy uh, dignity in, in his death. It's a great moment, and it's th- those little touches, as you say. What I like about how it's transferred from screen to page... This is almost like the Sea Devils, the movie. It, it's restructured. And those first sort of 40, 50 pages are basically just episode one. Yeah. But there's, they're made meatier. But it, even though you know what's coming as a fan, I'm sure as a kid mm. reading this, you would find it really... Inth- because it builds up the mystery in the classic episode one stance. But as you say, it goes towards the theory that there is a lot of padding in the middle of those six-parters. Then it kind of jumps around and takes certain elements from the other episodes before getting to episode six. It's funny you say that about it being Sea Devils, the movie. Mm. The bit when the Sea Devils come out of the sea to get the Doctor and and Joe. Mm. In the book, it's six Sea Devils, the same number from television. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Why didn't he amp it up to, like, an army of hundreds? Uh, I know, or even just, you know, ten. Yeah. But but no, in the book, it says six Sea Devils came out of the sea. (laughs) Brilliant. I really like what he does with the opening 
of the book because I stuck on the TV version while I was working at home this week. I didn't pay too much attention to it, but yeah. I hadn't watched it in a while and I just wanted to get a feel for it. And in the opening scene, you, which probably lasts 40 seconds in the, the, the televised version, there's this submarine crash or boat crash or whatever it is and you, you see a sea devil's hand. In this, you get the full reveal of the sea devils, but it gives this you know, nameless extra almost on the uh, TV version, like thinking about his crew, thinking about family at home, and for a moment thinking the thing tearing through the bulk of the ship is going to save him, and then ultimately it kills him in quite a callous way. And it's quite a a sharp, uh, shocking opening. Uh, Again, it's Hulk giving character to minor characters. He does the same with Dinosaur Invasion with Sugar McPherson, the drunk Scottish football fan, (laughs) with a hangover, wakes up, deserted London. It's it's exactly the same thing. In fact, I made a note about this. So so the crew of this this merchant ship, they've all got nicknames. They're called Mm. Scouse, Jock and Jamaican. Yeah. Now, I've heard a tiny tiny bit of the uh, audiobook read by Jeffrey Beavers mm. and and there's some dialogue from Jamaican because our main character's remembering a conversation yeah and I don't know who told him that accent was was acceptable for Jamaican <laughs> it was recorded in 2021 so I I don't know but also the the guy even says that Jamaican isn't called cool. it isn't actually no, no, Jamaican does it? it it's in Trinidad yeah so Beavers is doing some kind of Caribbean accent of some kind, mm. possibly slightly more convincing than Jim Davidson's. <laughs> but either way, you know, who signed that off? So when I opened the book and it's open with this thing and I thought, oh, where's it going with this? Is this going to be some sort of questionable dated politics? But it's not. <laughs> it's just on the ship. Look, they've got nicknames based on where they're from. I know. I did think, though, it, it does feel slightly dated, as you say. But you're right, maybe sailors do that. They have nicknames based on where they're from. I was worried it was going to be a little insensitive, but I didn't feel like it came across that way. It just felt like of the time. But it was more a comment on the captain's ignorance than any shade thrown in the direction of the Trinidadian character. I also think the book's slightly funnier than the TV version. There's a particular moment I'm thinking of. of uh, It's the first meeting between Captain Hart and the Doctor. The Doctor saying he hasn't got any passes and Hart's getting a bit pissed off with him about that. But in the TV version, that happens very quickly. But on this one, it's just this whole big roundabout chat of, uh, yeah. how would I have known this was private property if I came in from the sea, as you say, and I, there were no signs out there? It's very funny, but you can see the Pertwee Doctor delivering it, so he captures the, like, the essence of, of, of that character as well. Speaking of which, when Captain Hart, right, he said, his thoughts are like, when Doctor Who first came to his attention, he's looking out, out the window. That's another thing about the targets that, now irk me as a as a grown up fan. It's like certain bits, characters will think of him as Doctor Who, yeah. and yet no one ever refers to him as that in dialogue or even himself. Yeah, it, it's kind of like this grown up thing that fans like. You know, it's not Doctor Who and the yeah. or whatever is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's the thing when the program's credits from Hartnell onwards said Doctor Who. Yeah, you're stuck with it, and yet even David Whittaker put in the writer's guide never call the character Doctor Who in dialogue. Yeah. Well, why don't you just clear that up for everybody yeah. for the last 50 years? <laughs> You're right. They do refer to him as Doctor Who. 
And there's also this thing of, there's never a description of this thing is called the Sea Devil. It's just the Sea Devils are on the front cover and the moment they're mentioned, yeah. they're called the Sea Devils. Which I guess, you know, you've got a certain amount of pages and you've got to make the assumption yeah. that everyone's going to know that they're the main monster in this. Exactly. I mean, the Doctor does refer to them as Homo Reptilia a yeah. few times and calls them lizard men and women. But even he calls them Sea Devils. Yeah. So, so it's like, so Doctor, you're advocating them as, as people, but you're still using this racist slur. <laughs> I think that Doctor Who as a whole has just accepted that both the Sea Devils and the Ice Warriors, even though that that's not their name, it is yeah. just what we refer to them as, and also themselves, and it's, it's just a coincidence. Uh, exactly, it's like, you know, we recently had Legend of the Sea Devils, didn't we? Yeah. So it, it's there forever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. One of the other things that struck me was, it's not so much that it's educational but it does explain things in like a neat way to 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 the audience uh i'm thinking there's a a a thing about sonar equipment yep yep that's really good the master goes we're going to need sonar equipment and trenchard sort of goes sonar equipment question mark and then the master explains what it is and trenchard goes i know what you mean (laughs) but where am i going to get it but it's a great way for an eight-year-old reading that who's not going to know what sonar what sonar equipment is although Despite how non-patronising they're written, the two bits where Joe seems to have lost an IQ point, because the Doctor has to explain to her what Mayday means when he uses it to call the the, the air sea rescue, and also explain what the Marie Celeste is when we talk about the deserted oil rig. Thinking, oh, for goodness sake, you know, Malcolm Holt, he gives all this depth to the monsters, and yet Joe Grant, he treats her like a simple child. (laughs) On the other hand, though, the scene where she's evading the guards... And rescues a doctor shows her intelligence and skills at improvising and, and coming up with plans. So I can understand why you had to explain it to the reader, mm. but why couldn't you have thought of a, a clever way like the sonar, yeah. uh, as, as he did with explaining a Marie Celeste or or Mayday call? Yeah, of course. I, I'd say they're the only things that really let it down is just Joe comes across as dumb in a couple of scenes. Yeah, no, I do get that. Are there any particular other characterisations that, that you're particularly fond of in there, whether it's the Doctor, the Master or the supporting cast? I think the Master. Mm. Just just the way that when they meet him, the Doctor and Master always were courteous to each other. Yeah. When when they leave him, he says to Joe, and, and, may, and may God go with you. Yeah. You know, I wonder how much of that is an act yeah. and how much of it is genuine affection for her. You know, it's like my best enemy kind of thing. Mm. And, and just the way that Marcy uses Trenchard, and Trenchard's not an idiot, but mm. he gets blinded by his patriotism. Yeah. And it's like, oh, right, this will restore my glory or whatever. You know, they'll build a statue to me and, and stuff like that because I've saved England. He really comes across as like a man out of time, which he would be mm. in that era. As he, he says, I think it's in the TV version as well, that he used to be the governor of a colony. Yeah. And obviously there isn't need for governors of colonies anymore, so he's now the governor of a specialist prison. And you can yeah. see that he was obviously held in high esteem by lots of people and now he's really yeah. struggling to find he wants to have his hero moment but not for him but for as you say for his country exactly it's like one of his ancestors died fighting in india yeah. by doing his duty and, and when he's going to come from the sea devils when they attack the prison that's why he's got in mind a, a glorious death yeah but in the book he leaves a safety catch on and doesn't shoot and bang and also the, another little thing you were talking about the master there also in that scene as they uh, the doctor and joe depart this says the master even has like a little tear in his eye yeah which i thought was very sweet again whether it's the master putting something on here or yeah. or whether it's it, it's genuine who knows but there is i always felt with the tv version and with this that there was 
a warmth that was real between the Doctor and the Master there. Yeah. Like, it didn't feel to me like it was all part of the cunning plan. And something I do like that they do with the new series is have the Master especially see it all as a game. Mm. That it, He's just having fun with lesser creatures that he doesn't see as important to bait the Doctor, whereas yeah. the Doctor's the hero who's like, no, leave all these people alone. What are you doing? You're a weirdo. And I think some of that shines through in, in their relationship in this, certainly. I'll tell you what else is interesting. It's all Master's stuff. It is, is when the Doctor's remembering the, the Master being put on trial by the British government. Yeah. It's hush-hush, but the public know about it. He's like this mass terrorist, but it's all a closed court. Yeah. And like, there's even talk of a death penalty. Yeah. The doctor then pleads for his life. And I'm thinking, well, the death penalty is gone. Were they just thinking about bringing it back just for him <laughs> because he's been so evil? Uh, and, and then, you know, in a similar thing, it's like when he's with Trenchard. Trenchard's an idiot. He mm. hates him, but he's useful to get out of prison. Yeah. And he wants revenge against humanity just to get to the doctor. <laughs> I also think, jumping back to the master's trial... The boat driver that's taking the doctor and yeah. Joe over says, "Oh, waste of taxpayers' money. We should we kill the master," yeah. which is quite big ideas for an eight, nine-year-old to kind of deal with. But it is it, it's again adding these layers to the story. It's bringing real life. It's like when when Walker, the um, the obligatory Pertwee man from the Ministry, <laughs> in the book, you know, when the doctor said, "I can negotiate peace between you and the Sea Devils," mm. well, Walker says. We can't even live in peace. You know, look at Israel, look at Northern Ireland. Yeah. They would never have been name-checked on television. Of course. So again, Hulk's getting in the message in a subtle way. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of little touches like that and certain changes to the story. So I guess, are there any particular standout changes or moments that you want to talk about further? But just little things. Giving the Sea Devils a little bit, bit more depth and, and, and really Trenchard and the Master coming across as, as being civilised and yeah. friendly. They're the moments that stand out. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really entertaining still. One thing that threw me slightly, but I did enjoy, was when the master makes mention of the Ogrons. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, Hang, but the Ogrons? That came out... But obviously the book came out later, but I love the fact that he's yeah. tied those two little things together, and it's just yeah. it's just a nice little thing, I think. Yeah, because he, he wrote that as well. Yeah. The, uh, the Space War. Of course. There's a little thing, as the Doctor and Joe arrive... At the prison, there's just this little moment when they disembark the boat where they find a poem engraved. Oh, yes. And they just talk about the meaning of this poem and it has no call to be there, but it's just a lovely little moment between the two of them. It, it sort of hints at, at creatures living under the sea yeah. off this island. So, you know, legend or order has been passed down. But, oh, that's another thing. The way that Malcolm Hope puts in a kind of message. Joe thinks about the pollution that they're, they're, they're yeah. going through on this little powerboat. And, and later on, the master says how mankind's made different species of animals extinct mm -hmm. when he's arguing with the doctor. Yeah. That bit at the end, when, when the master says to the doctor, you committed mass suicide by blowing up the sea devils, and yeah. the doctor thinks, well, he's right. Mm. You know, I have done. Again, it's, it's given this moral complexity to, to Doctor Who that's not always there. I think Malcolm Hulk's stories are always more politically driven. Mm. I think the Pertwee era in general's got quite a lot of that, and I think you kind of get the perfect balance yeah. of it because you've got right-wing Terence Dix versus left-wing Barry Letts, yeah. and they both make sure neither of them go too far, but they both know it's important to discuss these yeah. things, albeit through a kid's TV show or a family TV show. I'd go as far as saying that Malcolm Hulk is my favourite of yeah. the classic writers, because he did that. In fact, indirectly, he inspired the name of our son, because our son is called Malcolm. Right. Partly from 
we spent six months trying to decide a name that we both agree on. Mm. So it's like we say that and go, no, I hated a person at school that was called that. <laughs> and, and I just glanced along my bookshelf and now it was writing for television. Amazing. And I thought, yeah, why not? Because I used the same method for naming soldiers in a video game called UFO, <laughs> Enemy Unknown. So I just look at my shoulders, so New Adventures authors became soldiers Amazing. and stuff like that. We even jokingly thought, what if we gave our son the middle name of Hulk? <laughs> so it'd be Malcolm Hulk Isles. I think that's, that's a great name. Well, I'd have to change it by deed Paul now, and he's nearly 14, so he may or may not object <laughs> to having the fake middle name, but uh, it, it's there anyway. So the version you read, was it the reprint or was it the original? The original Chris Achilleos. It's a reprint from 1975. I love that cover by Chris Achilleos. I just think it's so... It's brilliant, isn't it? The way it's just against the white and then you get like all the colours that really pop on it. I mean, yeah. Chris Achilles's covers are always brilliant that one in particular it's so striking and that's kind of yeah. early on when they're setting up that look and that's the first yeah. great you know you get that run of mm. Doctor Who books that all have that that they now emulate with the with the new Target books yeah it's weird and good that that Achilles design has become so associated with, with the series of books now is that the first one to feature a companion yes it is yeah so uh, I had a quick look on TARDIS data core or whatever <laughs> it was and that was one of the facts they came up with they were like yeah it's the first cover to feature a companion wow what I'd completely forgotten about until about page yes. two or three is that there's also pictures on the inside yeah by Alan Willow yeah. I'm not sure which other ones he illustrated mm. some of the likenesses are slightly off yeah but I guess that's a hangover from them being children's books isn't it yeah when I read Doctor Who and the Daleks, uh, that has illustrations. I think that was amongst the batch I got in 87 as yeah. well. Whereas the later ones like Weber feared David Daleks didn't. Mm. Uh, I think David Daleks has a map at the beginning yeah. uh, of Audley House. But that's about it. But some good drawings. There's only about six. But I'd say the one where the Sea Devil comes out towards the Doctor's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, and, and this one, the Sea Devil watching the submarine on a monitor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I quite like that one. It's like... You know, these sailors being gunned down by the sea devil. Yeah. And they are very much in a style of children's books, but they, you know, they just they just add a little bit of extra depth. And I can imagine being seven, eight years old and just being really excited to get to the pages with the pictures. Oh, definitely. When I was that age, you know, books that were all text did seem a little off-putting. Yeah, completely. Is there anything else you want to say about Doctor Who and the Sea Devils? Something else that I think Hulk added, when the Master says he's not human to Trenchard, mm. he says, oh, I've, got, I've got two hearts, our body temperature's 60 degrees Fahrenheit, I don't know what that is in, in centigrade, <laughs> but obviously it's different. Our breathing's differently. Uh, and it's like, well, Malcolm Hulk co-created the Time Lords, didn't he? So is that a legitimate fact? We have to go with that now. <laughs> 100%. That's canon. I just thoroughly enjoyed going back to it. And as, as you know, I ask everybody whether they think the, the particular choice is a clanger or a banger. So is it a clanger or a banger, John? Well, since the clangers were excised from this version, <laughs> we're only left with one choice. It's a banger. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a banger from me too. I haven't read a Target book in 20 odd years. Is, so it was really nice to go back to them and to go back to one that I don't think I'd read before because it was quite an early repeat, The Sea Devils, so I don't think I would have ever yeah. read it. So, yeah, it's a banger from me too. Good. I'm glad to have reintroduced it to your life, Dylan. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
The making of Doctor Who was a special produced by the New Jersey Network, which first aired on NJN on the 19th of November 1988. It was broadcast as part of Party that aired on NJN, which was basically a pledge drive with Sylvester and Sophie hosting. Uh, And it was at a hotel, so it was basically a convention, and there were 500 attendees. Wow. Which I assume that footage must exist somewhere obviously we'll 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 talk a little later about what else exists and where it might pop up if it ever does but i had no idea that there was this wedge drive to it so at the time season 25 had just begun broadcasting episode one of silver nemesis itself obviously aired on the 23rd of november 1988 and it was announced that terror of the zygons and the talons of wing triang were getting released on video so it was early days for that david banks's cybermen book was just out and the comic strip at the time was a multi-doctor number called planet of the dead also in doctor who magazine that came out at the time for this there is a little quote from terry nation at a convention where he said what doctor who needs now is love and affection this was at scorpio the scorpio convention in illinois he branded current doctor who a disgrace and felt the show needed to go back to basics with good stories and a real fellow playing the Doctor and forget the silly costumes. Harsh words there from Terry Nation. Yeah, wasn't it he that approached the BBC with Jerry Davis yeah. with an idea to produce Doctor Who? So, so they must have been thinking about it at that time then. Yeah, they approached them shortly after the cancellation, I think. Yeah. And I guess he's probably referring to seasons 23 and 24. Uh, both seasons, which I'm very yeah. fond of, but I understand the mm. the backlash at the time. It's a bit of a shame that he felt like that, but also it was quite popular at the time, especially at conventions, for people yeah. who used to make the show to slag off the current show. There were convention footage from the time of even Peter Davison sort of slagging off the Colin Baker era, just saying, oh, it's a bit silly and it needs to get back to... But a lot of that... Really? Yeah, but I think a lot of that is just feeding into people saying what playing to the audience yeah playing to the audience and the general consensus that people say even today about certain things without really checking the facts you know like yeah the the most classic example of oh doctor who all the sets wobbled back in the day Uh, and so every member of the public kind of reels that off as a general opinion that isn't actually true no i I think the only one i can remember really is in ambassadors of death oh really wall wobbles when regan's gotten captured yeah it took somebody and like the goon or whatever hence mm. when he flies backwards and knocks the wall and, and it wobbles a bit yeah I mean, but those things happen in lots of old TV shows. Exactly. It's not just Doctor Who. Exactly. That's the one that people remember. Mm. But it's always those lazy opinions. Like, So the lazy opinion is Doctor Who wasn't very good towards the end in the classic series. Yeah. The, the opinion now that oh, Doctor Who wasn't very good after Matt Smith left and things like that. It's a, it's lazy yeah. things that you know people reel off because they think it's, a, it's not as good since so-and-so took the role. No. But, you know, it is what it is. No. One little story, which I'll try and keep short, that was also in Doctor Who magazine at the time (laughs) was Doctor Who on stage American freelance writer John Estrander is still hopeful that his Doctor Who play The Inheritors of Time will make it to the stage Two years ago, all the preliminary preparations for a production had been completed. It had a director, designers, all but one of the actors and a theatre had been found It was a story that was set in a, with a new version of the Doctor between Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, uh, something which has been mined to death in many a spin-off <laughs> media since. But John wanted £500,000 for his Chicago-based production, and he was out there trying to raise money for it, and ultimately 
it never came to fruition. It's just one of those mad little stories that I think of like there was a sort of fan out there trying to raise half a million quid to make a Doctor Who play. I've never heard of this. As I do this podcast and look back at more and more old Doctor Who magazines, there's always lots of talk about stage plays and I've never really... But beyond the big ones of like the ultimate adventure and the mm. you know seven keys of doomsday, but there's so many smaller productions and aborted attempts. It's it's untrue. It's weird. Maybe it's just that thing of trying to get a stage play based on a TV show. Yeah. It, it maybe it's just just not enough interest. Yeah. So they don't get the funding for it. Of course. So the making of Silver Nemesis or the making of Doctor Who, Silver Nemesis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is uh, a documentary about the making of Silver Nemesis. When did you first experience this? I first experienced it when the video came out of Silver Nemesis, the extended Silver Nemesis, Yeah. with, with, with the shiny, glittery um, <laughs> foil, foil, foil sleeve. Yeah. I, I think I'm one of these people that always wants to know how things work or, or how things happen. And so I'd taken an interest. So '93, when it came out, I was into fandom. I'd read Doctor Who magazine, mm. read behind the scenes stuff. I'd seen making of film documentaries as well. Yeah. This was the first television one. Mm. Uh, and apart from say, Resistance is useless. Yeah. It was the first Doctor Who documentary I'd seen. In fact, this might be the first actual making of Doctor Who ever. Yeah. Because, because you've got those bits from Who's Doctor Who, mm. where where they're rehearsing Talon's Wen Chiang. Yeah. But really, there isn't anything that shows them rehearsing. I think it's a really good introduction, especially to me, for just things I've read about. So you've seen the producers run. You've seen the rehearsal room with bits of tape mm. representing the set. The interview all the, ca- all the cast and crew, like Chris Clough, director, explains stuff. Makeup designer, Norka, director, explains stuff. Lighting director, explains stuff. S- set designer, they explain their jobs. Yeah. You know, and I think if I was a kid, in fact, even as an amateur filmmaker, things I learned from watching that, have gone on to to inform my approach because I didn't know anything when I, when I started. Yeah, you know, uh, and I think it's a really good example of how everything's done and documenting the production, uh, and it's just really entertaining as well. I, I find it quite fun to watch as well because you know you forget Sylvester and Sophie when they're rehearsing or just playing around between takes are just so amusing and just get on so well with each other yeah it's just infectious the energy as you say it's a real insight into the process and it's the sort of thing that makes you want to be there it makes you want to be a part of yeah you can see why it gets people into wanting to make television and film and things like that it does look a little bit at the pressures you know especially when they talk about how they're going to achieve certain things and certain things going wrong yeah. but i want to be on that tour to not Windsor, but pretend Windsor, and you know, I, yeah. you know, it just, it just seems like so much fun, and it's like, oh, what? This is a job that people can actually get paid for. Exactly, and it's not patronising mm, at all no. either. Uh, I mean, even that little bit where Kef McCulloch demonstrates the music, yeah, you know, plays up a bit of Remembrance, which is the best part of Remembrance the soundtrack. <laughs> but it, it's like in '88, so I watched this in '93, so it wasn't that old. Yeah, this is just really good. It's how it all works. Yeah. It, this is brilliant, you know, and. We didn't get this kind of documentary until they started doing Dot Two DVDs. So. Yeah, exactly. It's a little time capsule of the time because we get a lot of insight yeah. now into what things were retrospectively like, and we might get on the Blu-rays you get raw studio footage and things like that, which is great. Yeah. But this is just like pulling the best bits of that and also getting their contemporary thoughts on 
what it, it is like to make the show. Exactly. I think apart from that talons, mm. I don't think we've got any footage of Doctor Who rehearsals, have we? No, I don't. I don't think we have. I think these remain the only two. It's quite a unique moment to capture. It is unique. It is, and it means quite a lot to me. Like I used to watch it again and again as a kid. Like I just <laughs> so here, but I was an adult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have been, I would have been probably any time, any age between sort of. This came out in '93, did you say something like yeah, that? So yeah, May '93. I, I was ten in '93, but I probably didn't get it till like a couple of years after. So I was yeah. twelve there. But I used to, I can almost picture myself, my childhood bedroom, sitting there and watching it. It's really weird yeah. how kind of vividly it sits there and you know it as you say it doesn't speak down to the audience you learn what everybody does yeah. and it just suddenly makes this magical world slightly more accessible yeah i, I know you you work in tv mm. did this influence you at all it absolutely did i think there are several moments in my life that i, I can say definitely influenced it one is this yeah. one is the making of mind game the real-time spin-off oh, oh, that- that, oh yeah, that one. Mm. The making of mind game is longer than mind yes, game. Yes, it is. Yeah, but it's a brilliant documentary. Yeah, it, it was so. I, I really remember that specifically, and like being like, oh, people would do this as a job, or I could do this as a job. And then the other one is is not a making of documentary. But when I was about twelve years old, there used to be a Doctor Who mm. convention called Panopticon that happened in Coventry. I, I went to one of them. Which one was it? When it moved to Manchester uh, for. for a, a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was there as well, but I grew up in Birmingham. No, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Birmingham. Obviously, Coventry isn't too far, but also it used yeah. to be in September when my birthday is. So I got into this routine of like, what do you want for your birthday? I want to go to the Doctor Who convention in Coventry. Oh, brilliant. You know? I wish my parents could have done that. <laughs> if it had been London, they would have been like, no. Of course, yeah. It was also perfectly timed with that my dad would go would take me and my uncles would pop along and they'd basically just go down the pub for, you know, the afternoon yeah. and I'd just go and sit and watch Sophie Aldred do a talk or whatever. But one particular year, we stayed over for the evening entertainment, which was a bit... Oh, wow. And they used to have a celebrity meal and you'd sit down at the table and you'd be sat with one of the stars of Doctor Who. My dad warned me, he was like, you won't get John Pertwee or somebody like that. It'll be somebody who used to be a Cyberman. And so I got, or we got, there were, say, 10 fans sat around this table. The VFX guys, so it was Mike Tucker and a guy called Alan Rocky Marshall. Uh, I've heard of him. Mike Tucker is a really entertaining guy. He, he is. Rocky Marshall. I can't remember where I know him from, but I know the name. The, the, but they used to be kind of a duo in the 90s uh, on the convention scene, but they did Red Dwarf and Doctor Who and all those things. And I guess potentially because they didn't want to have dull conversations with older fans, they just zeroed in on me, who was quite disappointed because I wanted John Pertwee or Sylvester McCoy. And yeah. they just started talking to me about special effects. And that is, I think that's probably like that sliding doors moment in my life where I was like, I could. I'm not. I don't do special effects, but just this sliding doors moment of yeah. oh, you could work in, work in telly and do and do that sort of thing. But that's that's a slight digression. For, to answer your question, yes, I know you, you're you're meant to be interviewing me. <laughs> but yeah, it is quite an influential bit of television production. I'm sure there are people out there now who watch Doctor Who Confidential in the noughties and have, oh, have yeah. gone on a similar path. I, I think I've seen it on Twitter. People yeah. have said, you know, I went on to work in TV from obsessing over Doctor Who Confidential. Mm, yeah. So as you say, there was loads of interviews with cast and crew and. Yeah. 
lot of people who wouldn't normally be interviewed. You get the assistant floor manager, and you know, yeah. I know Gary Danny's a little bit inf- infamous in Doctor Who fandom and did conventions, yes. but mainly as the partner of JNT. But it's quite interesting hearing his role actually because you forget yeah, this yeah. was his job. He actually does his job. Yeah. From reading the Life in Scandalous Times of JNT, you'd think he didn't do yeah. his job very well. <laughs> but he, he comes in fact. There's, there's two Gary Downey moments that always stick in my mind and my friend's mind. Yeah. Is before we do a take or whatever, he says, "Come on, let's make magic." Yes. Now, now, <laughs> one of our Westlake Films team, he says that before we do filming or recording <laughs> to this day. Uh, and the other thing that sticks in my head is when he talks about Sylvester McCoy is late for location filming, so like most of the cast have come down on the bus from London, but McCoy's being allowed to come in his own car. Uh, and Downey saying to to the documentary crew, this is why I like everyone to come on the coach, because I'd rather know where 50 bodies are all together in one place rather than scattered throughout England. <laughs> it's a brilliant moment, and he comes across it, it he comes across very well on it, and you do get conversations between him and Chris Clough. Chris Clough comes across so well in that. Yeah. He seems so knowledgeable about what he's doing. Yeah. In fact, I, I had to look this up. He, he went on to produce Belly Kiss Angel. Yeah. And, and skins, yeah, he did. Uh, which were really successful. Yeah, he just comes across almost like a new generation of television directors. He's out on yeah. location, trying not to do multi-camera mm. and stuff. I know a lot of that was influenced by JNT's budgetary decisions, but even so, yeah. his stories on location always feel like, uh, you know, they feel slightly more epic than some of the, the other directors were. Yeah, he did um, The Ultimate Four, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. At the Posture Museum in, yeah. in Stoke, which looks nothing like it does on television in daylight. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're watching it, the way it's lit and shot, you would not think it's such a small space in real life. You know, it comes across so well. And and it comes across so well with the editing and the angles in Silver Nemesis. Yeah. I think all these stories, even Delta and Abandonman looks great. Yeah, 100%. And so I think it's great to get a bit of insight with him on the job. I also think there's a one little sad moment where John Nathan Turner talks oh, about moving yeah. on and it's like... Now knowing yeah. what we know about him and how much he wanted to move on, I know. it's just like it's, it's sad, isn't it? It is. It's tragic. It, it is. It... Especially when when um, the host uh, Eric Luskin says, "If if John Nathan Turner's name's on the credits for season twenty six, why will that be?" And he says, "Because Sylvester McCoy persuaded me to stay on." <laughs> but but obviously, sadly, the reality was the job was a poison chalice that no BBC producer wanted. Yeah. And if he didn't stay on, they would have cancelled it a year earlier. Yeah. Or, or or years earlier, wouldn't they? I mean, knowing what we know about JNT now makes it's 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 a very sad end to like mm. what could have been a promising career. Well, what was a promising career, and he did very yeah. well, but it, he never really recovered from that Doctor Who anchor around his neck. No, but it's lovely seeing him interviewed here. You know, giving some good insight. I always wanted to know, and I still don't know until they finally release it on Blu-ray. And it's cleared up. What's on the shelf behind him? Are they books? Are they videos? What's on those videos? What's oh, in those books? I know one of the things he's got is that Doctor Who video game. Yes. The one with the sort of purpley cover. Yeah. I've seen that and there's what might be some kind of Saturn Award or something yeah. like it. But the, but there's a row of... Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I thought they were Myth Makers tapes, but clearly they're not Myth Makers <laughs> tapes because... No, they're probably Doctor Who either blank tapes that they've got or the commercial ones. Yeah. That's a good point. But yeah, the New Jersey Network wanted too much money for it to be on the 
DVD of Silver Nemesis, didn't they? Yeah, that's a real shame. And I hope they can rectify it for the Blu-ray. I hope so. They might see sense. Yeah, because it's a great documentary. What I didn't realise was also that we're not even seeing the full version on the VHS. Because Eric Saywood's refused permission for clips from his stories to be used, which is wild. Yeah. They obviously filmed a lot of footage. So there's... Yeah. And the a lot of the unused footage was shown as little fillers on oh. the pledge drive. Ah, so it may may exist yeah, so, somewhere. So the, the, there was a scene called the ma- a making of a scene, which was Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred rehearsing. There was another behind-the-scenes little feature, and then there was a conversation with Chris Clough, which I guess was just his full interview, which lasted 25 minutes and was wow. and, and was you know shown on that network at various times. But I couldn't find them online. I could only find short sort yeah. of 12-minute e- excerpts on, on YouTube. Are there any favourite moments you've got from this doc? Just all that stuff about really explaining what people do to a camera uh, and just seeing the fun that Sylvester and Sophie are having. Yeah rehearsing and acting and, and just like i think even now you know they're still really entertaining either on their own or together yeah and, and, and when i met them at conventions they've been really nice a couple of bits that i really liked beyond how informative and what an insight is into that world i love the little kef mcculloch scene where he plays the music of remembrance and then switches out the synths and to a bit of a party and it just yeah. t- turns it into something different and also there's the moment where they interview Anton Differing and you know he has no <laughs> idea what he's doing there I've written it here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing he's just like I could come here and I can watch Wimbledon so that's why I'm here yeah it says a lot about his performance in the I mean you know, it's not a bad performance by any means, no. but he's certainly someone that doesn't know what's, what show he's in. No, and, and again, this is the first time that I think Doctor Who's actually featured actual Nazis or neo-Nazis yeah. in the programme. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like swastikas everywhere or anything, no. but, but it's quite interesting to try to bring in this... Again, it's Cartmel bringing in that realistic yeah. graphic novel Alan Moore approach, isn't it? 100%, 100%. And Anton Differing really helps add to that, even if he doesn't know why he's there at all. Because, I, I mean, he had a career playing Germans yeah. in war films, so yeah. So I guess he was a go-to guy. Exactly. Maybe Darren Nesbitt wasn't available. <laughs> but no, it, it's it, even that's as you said, it's so entertaining, the whole thing. Yeah. Because I... I couldn't even remember how long it was until I rewatched it. Yeah. It's 54 minutes. It's brilliant. It's it's longer than I thought. David Banks. Mm. I love David Banks. Yeah. That Simon book's amazing. Iceberg is New Adventure. They're my favourite Cybermen, the 80s ones. Yeah. And and that look, those new costumes, is is brilliant. And and I just have to add that bit about Cyber Crotch. Yeah. When the costume (laughs) assistant, where where the seam is split and having to restitch it. I can tell you. When we made our Cyberman fan film, Deconstruction, there were replicas of the tomb costumes mm. made for Phase 4 films originally by uh, Philip Robinson. And I can tell you, they not quite cyber crotch, but cyber armpit, <laughs> where the strains of the design of a costume would result in a tear. Mm. And, and I tell you, we, we watched Tomb because we had to restore them a little bit. Mm. And, and I can tell you, there's shots in Tomb where you can see a little tear under the armpit. Right. And I thought, <laughs> they are a perfect replica. Exactly the same has happened to our replicas to the real things in the 60s. Of course. But... And I just thought, Cybercrot, that, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> Nothing has changed. So it was presented and produced by Eric Luskin. Do you know anything about Eric at all? I think I've read an interview with him in Doctor Who magazine when they released the video. Right. And he talked about, he was a journalist that worked for uh, New Jersey Network. Uh, and he, he persuaded them to make a or fund a documentary for Doctor Who, 
and he was given uh, an amount of number of days he could come over to England yeah. to film it. I think it was probably just like him and a camera and a sound guy, probably, you know, as yeah. low budget as possible. But, you know, got so much access. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the network showed Doctor Who, but it was a PBS thing, I imagine, wasn't it? So he was a fan. He was a fan, and it was all about driving funds. He's also responsible for another couple of films which are available oh, out there. One is Patrick Troughton in America. I've heard of that. Which is available from real time. And the other one is Who's Who's Who? Which is another. I've seen that sleeve as well. <laughs> yeah, and that that's available from real time pictures as well. Ah, I've seen the Patrick Troughton one, but not the other one. The Patrick Troughton one, it's not as detailed as this. It's just here's Patrick Troughton doing a couple of conventions, yeah. and then all these PBS links and stuff like that. But for someone right. there isn't that much footage of being interviewed, it's really nice to watch because it is all about his time on Doctor Who. That's the, all people care about. So it's 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 worth tracking down a copy if you can he was he was obviously a fan but he was also the face and of this publicly funded network and his agenda was like I'm, i can probably make some content and raise some money at the same time to keep us on air of course why wouldn't you want to make a documentary about something you love yeah exactly i'm very glad he did it i'd be interested to know whether there's more footage beyond the little things they edited like did the rushes for this still exist somewhere mm-hmm. is is there more of it somewhere in an archive in new jersey well if there is They'll be an NTSC, so they'll have to be PAL converted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to the restoration team. Well, hopefully, as we say, by the time the Blu-ray of season 25 comes around, this will have been pulled from the archives. I hope they see sense of it. Well, no one else is going to watch it yeah. unless we allow them. Yeah. Because uh, unless they're going to release it themselves, yeah. I can't see why they'd hold out for more money yeah. and, and, and people not watch it. So, is it a clanger or a banger? I think I know where we're going through this. Definitely a, a banger. 100% banger. There we go. Maestro. Maestro. TV. So, before we move on to the final release we're going to discuss today, you've got a bit of a background in Doctor Who spin-offs and Doctor Who fan films. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So, growing up, I always enjoyed telling jokes or writing stories Mm. and I never knew what I wanted to do. I still don't in a way. (laughs) So when I was in my teens, I thought I'd like to be a TV writer because I love Star Trek. I love Doctor Who. It was the very beginning of things like BC Writer's Room as well. You know, so there were these open pictures, but I was never good enough or confident enough to submit stuff. So I'd written articles, reviews and stories for fanzines. And then the logical thing was when I made Friends in 95 at a convention, they made their audio plays, Jamie Kate audio productions. It was Kevin Hiley and Jonathan Miles. And eventually it just morphed into us making videos. Nice. Along with a guy called Mark Wargan, who we're no longer in touch with. Mark, if you're out there, get in touch. And so we made a couple of videos that we don't let people see. And it was just, just a way of like not quite... Everyone wants to do it for a living, but it's enough of a hobby. And there's something about Star Trek and Doctor Who that spark fans being creative, yeah. whether they do it for a living or just as a hobby. You know, making fan films, making fan audios, making fanzines. There's just something there about it, I don't know what. And, and so we made fan films, released on VHS, of course. Mm. And then we decided to make some original comedies and dramas and, and eventually documentaries. And around the mid-2000s, I was a member of my local video club. So we entered their competitions and some other amateur things. And we won things like Film of the Year, nice. Best Cinematography for... One was for a sci-fi drama. They're all on YouTube. We can plug it later. And 
Uh, another was a documentary I made about my granddad. He worked in a fine worsted mill all of his life. So I interviewed him and we made a film as a college project for me. Nice. But that won Film of the Year and Best Cinema Photography in our local clubs competition. And most people do say nice things about our stuff Great. that we make. Obviously, real life and COVID got in the way, so we haven't made anything new for a while. Mm. But you know, we're still there. We're planning a comeback like a phoenix rising from the flames. <laughs> but through this periphery, uh, another of our group, Gareth Preston, we had this BBV connection, so we were friends with Paul Ebbs, who was a script editor for Bill, yeah. and Steve Johnson as well. Yeah. He did some, some work for Bill. So we kind of knew Bill a little bit, and Bill approached Gareth about doing a special feature, Autumn Diaries 2, a sequel to Autumn Diaries that was on the original Autumn's uh, DVD release. So it was a co-production, more or less, really. We did it all. Bill oversaw it, commented on the script and the edit, of course, because he was going to put it on his DVD. So possibly that and Deconstruction, a Cyberman film, not featuring the Doctor. Yeah. It's just me, I'm afraid. And everyone working on it said, John, it's your best acting role because <laughs> I barely have any dialogue. <laughs> it's mostly silent because I'm not very good at remembering lines. I'm better at writing them right. or organising the shoot than being in it. Mm. But it's a case of being a small group. It's like, who's most suited to play in this part? Mm. John, you can play this part. So, uh, so yeah, I, I go in front of the cameras when I have to, but I, I do prefer being behind the camera. Mm. It's a hobby, but one that, that's very rewarding. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And you've also had a few brushes with Big Finish. Yes. So I, I was part of Yahoo mailing list for Benice Summerfield, Paul Cornell moderated. Mm. This is about 2003, and there was a, an annual Benice Summerfield anthology that Big Finish were publishing and he left one slot for a newcomer in each one so for two years I submitted an idea didn't get a slot yeah and then he left and Simon Guerrier was in charge of a Bernice anthology that year and so you had to write your thousand word story send it in as a complete story and then Simon would choose which one he was going to put in the book I got very lucky he chose two that year so that was really good so that was my first paid writing job great so that was 2005 it was published in 2006 it was called The Night of Living Martian featured the the Ice Warrior character um, I can't remember his name right now it loses me Hello, future Dylan here, coming right from the heart of the Matrix, aka my office slash man cave with TARDIS data core open in front of me. And I can confirm that the Ice Warrior in Night of the Living Martian was in fact Vors. Toodle pip, see you next time. It didn't lead to, you know, fame and fortune, <laughs> but it was, it was nice. And then Simon was looking for pictures because he had the Christmas anthology for Big Finish, right. Doctor Who short trips. A History of Christmas. I didn't have an idea, but I mentioned to my friend Charles Octoloni, you got any ideas? And he did have an idea for a story set at Christmas, because mm. the Stone of Schoon, you know, the one that the Scottish and now the British monarchs are, are sitting on when they're, they're crowned mm. in the coronation, was stolen by students in 1950 from Westminster <laughs> Abbey on Christmas <laughs> Eve. But what if it was the Doctor that took it? Nice. So it's the first Doctor, Ian Barbara. Amazing. And so we wrote that. Simon was a great guy, Simon Guerrier, brilliant editor. In fact, he put on a Christmas party for the authors of, of that book <laughs> uh, in a room in a pub in London. So that was nice of him. But sadly, I, I didn't capitalise on, on this thing of like, oh, I'm published. Obviously, I split the fee with Charles, yeah. but we, we got paid £75 for that. Well, there you go. That's it, really. So fan audios, fan videos, and, and a brush with licensed spin-offs, which 
for the Doctor Who, all the storylines had to be run through the production office. Right. So RTD may have read my storyline, <laughs> our storyline. That's brilliant. Well, there you go. You've got a little bit of Doctor Who history right there. Sontaran's Old Soldiers from BBV was written by Simon Gerrard and Colin Hill, uh, and it was released in February of 2000. At the time, Andrew Cartmel had just been announced as returning to Doctor Who to write Winter for the Adept for Big Finish. Virgin announced the new Adventures of Bernie Summerfield book range was ending. The book range that ran from basically 96-97, when the new Adventures range ended, up until this point. So, you know, they had quite a good run. I own all, all of the new Adventures and the Bernice ones. I do, really? To the bitter end. She is, apart from say ace she she is the companion that i grew up with and, and ah, identify with the most that's amazing and my wife wouldn't allow us to call our daughter benice <laughs> i really wanted that but, but you know i got malcolm hulk in there anyway yeah exactly so. exactly also out at the time was the paradise of death on cd Greatest show in the galaxy on VHS. The Eighth Doctor Adventure was Parallel 59, while the Past Doctor Adventure was the Third Doctor and Joe story, The Last of the Gadarene by Mark Gatiss. Also out was The Boy Who Kicked Pigs, Tom Baker's novel, and the comic strip at the time was The Glorious Dead. That was a brilliant comic strip. They all were those Eighth Doctor yeah, ones. That Eighth Doctor run is just a fantastic time for Doctor Who comics. Captain Wells visits the captive Sontaran, Commander Brack, as she is investigating a number of military deaths spread over a 40-year period, mainly at peacetime. These deaths seem to be linked to Cobalt Blue, a multi-purpose substance being found in a variety of weapons. Although Brack initially refuses to help her, the two soon start to interrogate each other and learn much about their counterpart and Cobalt Blue. Wells learns that Brack fled from battle and was kept here where he influenced many of the wars across the world. Although he initially claims this was his mission, it is in fact a mission he set for himself to justify his cowardice. When he is finally found by the Sontarans, he forces a Sontaran's hand into killing him, thus ending his torment. I guess, first of all, why did you pick this one? Uh, out of all the BBVs, this is one that, I don't know, it just resonated just because it's different. We've got a different Sontaran. Uh, I know there's a slight difference in Conduct Unbecoming where the, the DNA is degenerating and they're questioning orders. Yeah. But this is one that basically becomes a human because he, he's, he's been in human captivity for so long. Mm. You know, he, he's thinking like one of us still, even if he's a Sontaran. Yeah. And I just think it's John Wadmore's best performance as well as a Sontaran. Yeah. Uh, I, I know he, he was in Mind Game Trilogy... I'm not quite sure if it was after or before this. I think he does Mind Game Trilogy and um, and Bill goes, he's good at doing Sontarans in a way that the guy who was the Sontaran in Mind Game yeah. wasn't as good, if I remember correctly. I mean, when did Silent Warrior come out? It was all the, sort of the same time. I mean, maybe he'd been recommended by a friend, but I think John Wadmore as the Sontaran in all of the BBV stuff, I think he does an amazing job. I think he's fantastic. I completely oh, yeah. understand why this resonates. It's so different from what you'd expect from a Sontaran story. For the audience listening who haven't heard it, it's a two-hander between John Wadmore as Brack and Sally Faulkner as a character called Alice Wells who works for the UN or UNIT. And it's this sort of Silence of the Lambs two-way interrogation, essentially. Mm. Wadmore Moore's character Brack is a prisoner and has been for many, many years, and Sally Faulkner's character needs some information. It's a layered and complicated conversation. It's it's not just two people in a room having a chat. You know, 
it's funny, it's almost like Malcolm Holt could have written this because you're giving that depth mm. to a Santaran. And also they discuss, uh, I mean, it doesn't get that deep, but they discuss the morals of warfare as well, bombing of Dresden, Churchill, all yeah. that kind of stuff as well. You know, she talks about her grandfather being a pilot and what have you, and he talks about how he's helped yeah. human history and helped with the warfare but didn't drop any of the bombs, but her granddad did. And, you know, who's the good person? Like, yeah. the people abroad saw your granddad as a devil and he thought he was an angel, you think he's an angel. It's like, it, it really does go into the complexities of warfare. And also, because it's a two-hander, and, and obviously this is a budget thing as well, because, you know, obviously BBB didn't have a massive budget. And when this scene's still you've got the world war one battle at the beginning it's sound effects and music and you've got the two actors narrating stuff to carry this scene it works really well and later on when brack is talking about how he managed to crash land on earth you've got the sounds of the space battle that he was in uh, and it's just him narrating it Mm. with sounds and music uh, and that comes across really well it's Mm. a really cheap way of doing it but it works and his dialogue is so rich and so well delivered yeah the way he sells certain moments include there's that moment where he's sort of debating with himself in the cell and and basically going a bit mad he is a Sontaran deserter who in a moment sort of basically fled from death which we all know the Sontarans aren't supposed to do and then he creates this mission (laughs) for himself on earth throughout the episode going is he really on a secret mission or has he created it and it's revealed at the end that obviously he has created it for himself yeah that's really interesting because they're supposed to die in battle the Sontaran that comes at the end to basically slap his wrist says you've lived for eight years longer than any of us on Taran. And he's not supposed to, and he's become more human and less Sontaran. The, the Sontaran that comes to slap his wrist isn't even there to kill him. No, because that would be an honourable thing. It's better to humiliate him by letting him live. Uh, and the reveal that ultimately Brack starts a fight with the Sontaran, and the reveal that Brack's actually had a gun the whole time? I, I know, I'm not quite sure how he, how he managed to hide that, but... Because he didn't want to get killed by the humans, I think, is the thing. Oh, uh, that's true. That's why he's got it, but uh, yeah, as you say, I don't know how he, he hid it, but I'm sure if he's had access to technology, he's been able to create something, because yeah. he's obviously been helping the war effort in in different ways yeah because it's one of the guns he, he developed for the humans it's some kind of cobalt blue laser yeah. thing the cobalt blue stuff is kind of a means to an end in terms of the plot but it's really an excuse for them to jump into the psychology of these two warriors two very different warriors yeah but as I said you get sally faulkner of invasion fame playing wells what do you yeah. think of her performance here i really liked her character in the invasion mm. so i was familiar with her obviously completely different character but i think she's just as convincing as Alice Wells. She's convincing, she's believable as a soldier. Obviously she doesn't know what to expect from Brack. At first she doesn't realise he's an alien until she meets him. Mm -hmm. You know, she comes from a family of fighters who fought in in the wars and I think it's almost like, like you said, it's like Science of the Lambs, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think she's trying to befriend him in the same way that Hannibal and, and Clarice kind of become friends don't they they have to earn each other's trust and Mm. he only wants to impart information to an equal so he's testing her to make sure that she is worthy of him even though actually he wants to talk and impart this information in a way because he's lonely because he he says for i can't remember how many years he sat there not saying anything until he decided all right i will join in yeah this is what i'm gonna do but it has to be on his terms so he's imparting information to show what a superior 
being he is, even though she's yeah. learning from him and learning more about Cobalt Blue. But I think she delivers a great performance and it's great that she starts to gain some empathy for the character and she's actually yeah. quite remorseful by the time she finds him dead at the end. But she does play second fiddle to Wadmore's character who simply, he's the impetus for the plot and so he gets all the best dialogue but that's no shadow on her performance. I love John Wadmore as a Sontaran. I love it even more the fact that he's not a Doctor Who fan at all, but is in so many of these things, but he's just mates with Nick Briggs. You get more honest performances from him when he does show up in things because he's not influenced by somebody else from watching the Time Warrior 20 times. It's just someone's gone, this is what they're like. And I think he gives one of the best Sontaran performances that you get out of including some of the TV stuff. Uh, Oh, he does. I remember the making of Someone by Shadows. Yeah. I think he'd... He decided to give up acting. He did, yeah. And Bill Bates kind of persuaded him to do Someone by Shadows. Yeah. Uh, and that got him back into acting because he enjoyed making that. He's great here. And it's an interesting thing because there are certain moments in the differences between the human and the Sontaran that are funny. But I think the difference here, yeah. the Sontaran is played completely straight. So it's not yeah. the comedy take on the Sontarans that the new series has done quite a lot is one particular take. I'm not going to slag it off or anything like that. But it's interesting here to see it done as, okay, they can still be funny when actually being completely straight characters and being yeah. menacing as well. I, I think, if anything, he's closer to the Kevin Lindsay version yeah. of those two stories rather than, say, Invasion of Time, or even the two Doctors, but then the two Doctors is Robert Holmes, and that's that's his vision of them. Yeah. So I, I'd say from the honour militaristic point of view, it, it fits with Robert Holmes' mm. creation quite well. But as you said, he's become human-like, hasn't mm. he? Yeah. And so he's very different, and, and I think that's really good. I wouldn't say he's better than Kevin Lindsay, but he's very good. But then if you gave Kevin Lindsay the same script, you'd probably get the same kind of feeling. They're cut from a similar cloth. And it's to do with the material that they're given and the best Sontaran stuff like you get in Conduct Unbecoming and and this and Sontaran Experiment in the Time Warriors where you really delve into their culture. Like Sontaran Experiment is such a a basic story in a way, but it's the fact that this guy is just torturing these people to find out their strengths and weaknesses. is just, it makes for an amusing 50 minutes or whatever. I also find it interesting that the Sontarans are like the third or fourth biggest recurring or popular Doctor Who monster as well. I wonder what it is that made them appeal so much. Because, I mean, the first two appearances were planned, but then Invasion of Time, it's like, we've got a gap, we need a script to be written in a weekend. You know, can we have the Suntarans, please, Bob? Yeah, it's a weird one. And then the new series obviously has a different take on them. I don't know quite what the appeal is to make them something that people think they need to keep bringing back and back. And... I don't feel like the new series has ever really nailed them. I think probably the the nearest is probably the most recent Jodie Whittaker episode, which I quite liked. War of the Sontarans. Yeah, but I feel like the BBV stuff and those early ones really nail it. Can I mention uh, Shakedown? Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah. Again, that was something I looked forward to. I I pre-ordered, got the VHS, and it's signed by the cast and Terrence Sticks. So that's another tape, taking up space in my loft. (laughs) Because due to whatever rights, Jason Hay Gallery won't release it on DVD. Yeah. Again, they had to change the design for copyright, but of course it's all licensed from Robert Holmes' estate. Tony Sticks wrote it. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. They, they, they come across strongly and they're still a comedy Sontaran. Yeah. And then similar with Mind Game and Mind Game Trilogy. I think the Sontaran's stronger in Mind Game Trilogy. Yes. It Possibly because it's John Wadmore yeah. playing him. But it's like even the fan films got in on Sontarans. It's mm. like they focused it because clearly 
no one's going to license the Daleks or the Cybermen. So it's like, who can we get? I mean, Bill Banks had a, a treatment for a Cyberman versus Ice Warrior film. Yeah. Yeah, so the Ice Warriors again are, are knocking around, aren't they? Mm, and there was also an Ice Warriors film that was planned by somebody. It, this was only on a post on oh. Gallifrey base just before the new series. And it was going to be... I think it was set in like a monastery or something like that with an ice warrior and a monk character. And it was a redesigned ice warrior. And the guy behind it, it never got made because I think the new series came back and various things happened. Yeah. But they built the costume for this redesigned ice warrior. And it's in something like an EE commercial or something, not as an <laughs> ice warrior, but it actually exists. And I think that was probably the last of someone trying to do a Doctor Who spin-off before the new series came back. Wow but who knows where that is. But back to Old Soldiers. So it was written by newcomers to BBV, Simon Gerard and Colin Hill. Gerard was a writer in commercial radio, writing topical comedy sketches, features and news reports. And he also became co-editor of Dreamwatch at one point and was also the partner of Wendy Padbury. I sort of remember that, but I wasn't sure if it was a false memory. Are they yeah. still together? I have no idea. <laughs> and then Hill was an old school friend of his from... Crosby and Liverpool and they just wanted to write some Doctor Who fiction they tried to write a third Doctor novel that they never completed and then so they pitched to BBV and their pitch for the Sontarans was essentially they had this idea of a Sontaran sitting in a deep shadow next to a fireplace a bit like Roald Dahl in Tales Uh of the Unexpected perhaps even wearing a smoking jacket which you know would obviously come back (laughs) with Strax later on of course but then they'd been thinking about Rudolf Hess and so it turned into something a bit more a bit more of a political thriller essentially this conversation I think they just deliver such a compelling script you know the dialogue is rich and vibrant and just sparkles it's poetic in places some of the Sontaran dialogue definitely that opening battle scene and the space thing that that's quite poetic yeah it's a really good idea for a script it's interesting their follow-up one infidel's comet was bbb trying to do an original one yeah just like they they did the pattern uh, as well but this is the only one gerard and hill worked on yeah i don't think they did anything else doctor who after infidel's comet did they no it's a shame because infidel's comet was one of the weaker releases i think yeah it it, it wasn't oh there's a santaran cameo yeah one line wasn't (laughs) yeah there's like a cameo from a few different i think the canine and the mistress appear in the scene as well like like, literally like a line but I think it's just cut from one of their previous yeah. audios. The thing I always remember about Infidel's Comets is that it's not a bad story. It's kind of like a big Hollywood blockbuster, yeah. but it's done in a BBV style and it doesn't quite lend itself, whereas this is perfect for BBV. It's two Definitely. people in a room having a conversation. The production design, the sound design of it all works really well. And this is the sort of stuff that they're really good at. Simon said that he was unhappy with the the ending. He felt like that needed a bit more work. How, how do you feel about that? I, I think you, you're right. It seems slightly implausible that he's been able to hide a, a gun on him all this time. Mm. But the idea of him turning up and saying, oh, we found you, um, we're just going to let you die in shame, Yeah, it is quite good. Yeah, But it is a bit of a cliche that he, he prompts a fight to get himself killed. But Aside from that, I think it's all still really good, even the ending. It is a bit rushed, but yeah, it works really well. There was brief talk of turning this into a film for obvious reasons that it could have been done quite cheaply. Of course. (laughs) I'm glad it didn't, because I think you capture the lightning once, you know, on, on this occasion. And while I'm sure it would have been a decent video... I don't think it would have been... Like, certain things, like where he's talking about the war and stuff like that, 
if you don't see it, it doesn't quite work. No, you could still do sound effects and a yeah. soft focus on his face, but it just wouldn't have the same impact. So is there anything else you want to say about old soldiers? They get in the obligatory sexual reference that seems to have to be in all Sontaran stories. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the exact line, but he says, your species gave up cooperative reproduction to make war. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it it has to be there. One of the things that I really liked as well is the fact that he's been there for years and he was sort of seen as a national treasure in a way like yeah. a secret and like all prime ministers come to visit him bishops mm. you know lords he yeah. says all these things and he had a relationship with churchill which i thought was just such such a cool idea that, that he was sort of like in a way guiding the the history of humanity a little bit this is absolutely one of my favorites of the bbv so i was very glad that you you picked it like this <laughs> uh, i think it's an absolute triumph of the bbv range and if people ever go to me bbv audio range can you recommend some? It's this and ice cream and, you know, a few others. But Definitely one of the highlights of BBV was yeah. this one. So is it a clanger or a banger? Definitely a banger. It is an absolute banger. We've had three bangers in a row. And there we go, that we've covered three very different spin-offs from the, the Doctor Who world there. Too, too, too hot for TV. Thank you so much, John, for bringing these onto the show and letting me talk about some things that I loved and things that you loved too. Thank you for inviting me, Dylan. I've enjoyed revisiting these and, and sharing my enthusiasm with you. No worries, anytime. But if people want to find you on the internet, you've got many things that, you know, you've got a <laughs> podcast, you've got your films and stuff like that. Tell, tell everybody where they can find you. Okay, so for Westlake Films... We have a YouTube channel that we're currently locked out from. <laughs> it, it's all there. Our, our videos ranging from Doctor Who, Deconstruction featuring the Cybermen, to Autumn Diaries 2, which we did for VVV. Uh, we've got Flash Gordon homages. We've got original sci-fi. We've got documentaries. And that's Westlake Films on YouTube. We are on Twitter as Westlake Films UK and... As for Tripodscast, we have a Tripodscast Facebook group. We're on Instagram as Tripodscast. We are on Anchor and on Spotify. All 10 episodes can be listened now. We will be adding it to Apple at some point, And the Twitter is at Tripodscast. Because if you go to Tripodcast, you'll get something else. <laughs> and I just want to say for people out there who haven't heard Tripodcast, it's a fantastic podcast. It doesn't matter whether you know the books or the TV series well or not at all or inside out. If you're a fan of cult television, young adult fiction, anything like that, it's a fantastic insight into that story and how it evolves and it's not just reviews of the books or the tv series you've got cast members you've got behind the scenes people and it really tells an interesting tale of this fictional world and where it's been and where it may or may not go in the future yes disney (laughs) movie rights and doing nothing with them since 2001 yeah, if you are a fan of cult TV or anything like that, then it's a fantastic podcast to listen to. So do go out and check it out. How many episodes are there? About twelve, something like that. It's officially ten episodes, but yeah. some were, were too long and they were split in, of course, in half. Yeah. We managed. I think it's fourteen. We stuck to our guns and managed to release them every fortnight. It was an impressive release rate. And our follow-up series will be monthly. Mm. So the final episode, which we devoted to Sam Ude mm. and talked about his other books outside of the tripods where we uh, interviewed two of his children Nick and Rose Ude who run 
the the sale press mm. we spoke to them and between us the host we read about nine or ten of his non-sci-fi and other sci-fi books and chatted about those and and resulted in some people going out and buying them amazing so they've stepped out of the tripod's ghetto <laughs> but the episode about sam by coincidence we released on the centenary of his birth. Amazing. So it was a fitting ending, and, and we got an email from Rose Yude afterwards and saying it was a fitting tribute to their dad, and, and, and we, we should be proud of ourselves. Fantastic. So is there anything else you want to plug before we wrap things up? I'll tease our follow-up series from yeah. Tripodcast. It's going to be called I Don't Do Sci-Fi, <laughs> because Danny is a non-sci-fi fan. She loves the tripods. Mm. She loved the White Mountain. She loved the series. And so we're trying to with other stuff now. And we're going to begin with Star Cops. Nice. And we're going to be recording that in September. I don't know when we're going to release. We might bank a few episodes before releasing it. But stay tuned to the the socials of Tripods Cast for news on that. Next time, it's Halloween. It's the 31st of October, assuming I can get the episode out in time. And it's spooky season. I'm going to be joined by Mark Cockrum of the All in Time and Space podcast, and we're going to be looking at two spooky Doctor Who audio adventures. The first is Big Finish Seventh Doctor Story, Night Thoughts, and the second is BBC Audio's enhanced talking book, Dead Air, featuring the Tenth Doctor. But until then, I have been Dylan. And I've been John. And this has been Doctor Who, Too Hot for TV. For the listeners at home, what are you holding up there? So this is a How to Be a Television Writer. Right. It published in 1974. So basically it gives you, he explains how the television studio works. It gives you a difference between videotape series, film yeah. series. This is basically J. Michael Straczynski's screenwriting book right. decades earlier. He's written some, some example scripts he made up for the book by John mm. Smith. So there's teleplays, there's... And then there's bits from Zedcast, Crossroads. There's a Danny Spooner script extract for Jason King. Oh, wow. For the Doctor Who section. And I think this is, is Malcolm Holt showing his humility. He, he uses Carnival of Monsters. Oh, wow. The first three scenes. And he gets a couple of quotes from Barry Letts and Robert Holmes on, on that story as well. And it really is. And I mean, um, he talks about. You know, the whole film versus video thing as well. You know, they do all the exteriors on film mm. back then. And how you'd move actors from studio set to studio set. So you'd write your script like like the early Doctor Who's. Yeah. You know, you'd have one set of characters in one set and then you'd cut to the other set with the other characters while those moved to the, the new scene. Mm. You know, all that's in there to, to be treated as live. It's it's really good. It was republished in seventy six and eighty, so this is a nineteen eighty edition I got. It was also republished as writing for television in the seventies. Right. I got it second hand off a, a bookseller years and years ago. 
but it's a really good book and it's quite humorous and, and funny it's not serious at all mm. uh it gives you all the addresses of like the tv companies you could write to wow. them it, it really is a, a really good guide to uh to writing for television that's amazing um, not quite as relevant now but his, his comments on characterization and dialogue all work you know the the tv structure's strange but the book's really good too, 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 too hot for tv